Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. You may be seated. Walker Percy once wrote, why is it that when you're shown a group photograph in which you're present, you always and probably covertly seek yourself out to see what you look like? Don't you know what you look like? I first read those questions in my father-in-law Henry's copy of Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Ardell and I hadn't been married for long, and I was glad to find this common affection with this warm, complicated, literary Pentecostal preacher who would soon be our children's grandfather one day. Henry's wife, Cora, had been a sometime midwife's assistant who was present to a lot of uh, births, 14 of which were her own, lucky the number 13 being my beloved Ardell, which is surely why everybody in Pine Bluff but her elders called her Mama Cora. The births she attended were mostly for women who were too poor to afford a hospital or too remote to get to one and delivered their babies inside their humble houses and at least one of them in the back of a decommissioned school bus. But when Mama Cora told the stories of these births, I worried that Walker Percy might have called me out for another secret narcissism. Even though all the heroes and main characters were women, I couldn't help looking over at the person in the story who looked the most like me, the poor dad. The one pacing nervously in the hallway or putting a kettle on to boil in the kitchen where the women had sent him to get his fretful energy out of the room for a while. My heart went out to that guy, out of place, lost in the cosmos, as he watched these women who seemed so capable and at ease, even as they tended to this strange and impossible and ordinary miracle. Unlike the gyroscope of baseless worries that spins around in my interior most days, this one was actually pretty spot on. As a few years later, I was that pacing, anxious dad who, when the time was fulfilled, caught our second child, our daughter, as she slipped from her mother and into this world like an otter from a rock. I was the dad who, until that moment, didn't know that in addition to the wonder and the joy of it all, there would be a flash of knee-folding terror. The sudden realization that as long as this perfect creature was alive in it, he'd be exposed to the world's cruelty and pain, not only through his own body, but through hers. She'd be a bundle of his own nerve endings with a will of its own, drifting away and off, but still perfectly entangled somehow in some quantum weirdness with his own fluttering heart. Put another way, terror and amazement seized me. I said nothing of this to anyone. I was afraid. So I guess this is me again, seeking myself out in Mark's strange resurrection account in which the women at the tomb that morning found themselves seized like a father at a birth, terrified and amazed all at once. In Mark, there are three responses to Jesus' death on Good Friday. 
There's the centurion who, after Jesus' last breath, says, Truly, this was God's Son. Women are also looking on. Mary Magdalene and another Mary, whom we just saw at the tomb, as well as many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem, we're told. Mark clearly wants us to see that none of the men who'd been Jesus' disciples were there when he died. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, places it in a tomb, and seals up the opening with a stone. We know these people, but let's spend a couple of minutes taking a fresh look at them and seeing if do so, doing so might actually help locate ourselves in this familiar old story anew. Ched Myers, maybe the most important modern interpreter of Mark's gospel, says that most readers have misunderstood the responses excuse me, uh, of the centurion and Joseph of Arimathea. We see them as converts at the, at the foot of the cross. And Meyer says that is far from certain in the Gospel of Mark. What is certain is that they were representatives of the two sources of opposition to this Jesus, both of which were complicit in his death, the empire and the religious establishment. So let's start with the centurion. He does speak the truth that this was God's son. But he bears no mark of discipleship, especially according to Mark's definition, which was to drop everything, take up one's cross, and follow. A few verses on, the centurion is summoned by Pilate to confirm that the crucified one is dead, and he dutifully replies, yes, he is. He and his soldiers have made sure of it. He looks more like a minion of the emperor than a disciple of Jesus. And remember the purpose of crucifixion was to make an execution gruesomely public. Crosses were these visible reminders of what opponents of this empire had coming to them. So over in the Gospel of John, when Pilate nails King of the Jews above Jesus' head, it wasn't to honor him. It was to let people know who's really in charge, not this Jewish king. Similarly, with no evidence of conversion, that centurion's calling Jesus son of a god might even be something of an imperial brag, elevating the importance of the ones the empire has killed or conquered is exactly how empire elevates itself, and death is how empire establishes its realm. Joseph of Arimathea is also someone warmly assumed to be a disciple, kindly offering to bury Jesus. Over in John, he's called a secret disciple, along with Nicodemus. But in Mark, it's a lot harder to see him in such a positive light. He's a respected member of the council, which wouldn't conjure up happy associations. And the word used for respected also suggests he was wealthy, which is just another strike against him in Mark. He was a wealthy member of the religious council who wanted the empire to execute Jesus. We're also told he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, but nobody thought its arrival would look like another executed Jew. It makes at least as much sense to see this Joseph as somebody who just wanted to get that body off the cross and sealed away. The council got the empire to do its bidding, but after that, this desecrated body was an embarrassment. So Joseph wraps it in a cloth, lays it in a tomb, and rolls a stone in front of the opening, sealing this horrible story for good, he hopes. 
The two Marys, we're told, were looking on. The two Marys, they saw the whole disgraceful thing. You see, this respected member of the religious council did not finish the work of religious preparation. That's why the women return on Sunday morning to give the body of their friend the proper Jewish burial it deserved. And not to belabor it, but don't you think if Joseph were a true disciple, the women might have gone to him for help rolling away the stone he'd sealed up that tomb with. As it is, they have no idea how they'll get into the tomb. They expect no help from the men, not any of them. But still they get up and take their spices and they go. There's work to be done. Women's work, it seems. When they arrive, as you know, that tomb is miraculously open. It is as open, we might even say, as the wombs of Sarah and Rachel and Hannah and Samson's mother and Elizabeth and in a different way from the rest, but maybe not as much as we think as Mary, the mother of the one who's suddenly gone missing from this tomb we thought had been closed for good. Is this not another opening by God of new life that involved the power of no man? An opening of new life by God in spite of, in defiance even, of the power of all those powerful men. Terror and amazement seized the women. For the powers that always seem to run the world may not be the ultimate powers after all. None of their representatives are to be found. Only the women are present. Only these faithful representatives of everything the emperors and authorities are not. And what they're told by that strange young man in white is that Jesus has been raised and is on the way to Galilee. Galilee, the place where Jesus of Nazareth is from. Galilee, where in the first moments of Mark's gospel, his ministry of healing and making disciples beholden to a different kind of power began. The story, in other words, is beginning again. The story is beginning anew. And being seized by terror and amazement makes all the sense in the world at a birth, does it not? Friends, I've taken all this trouble with the characters we thought we knew today because I believe, as Annie Dillard said, there never was a more holy age than ours and never a less. And unless the resurrection seizes us with the terror and amazement of a new life come to term, a life we could neither summon nor control, if it's just one more debatable fact among so many others, then it's just another dusty, lifeless artifact among the furniture of our religious imaginations. But if we begin with terror and amazement that we have known, we can enter the redemption story from right here. Because there never was a more holy age than ours, our strange pandemic age included. It is not so common to baptize a child on Easter morning, but the pandemic has created a bit of a baptismal backlog for us here at Calvary. So this is just one more convention that we are more than happy to set aside today. Just as we traded the dusty ceiling of our beloved Calvary Church for this magnificent April sky. But maybe little Bain's present here, presence here, as well as his parents Morgan and Will, recent nervous witnesses to his interest into the world, 
can help wrench you and me into the power of the resurrection as well. Because there never was a more holy day than this one, and never a less. Walker Percy was a Christian, and he had some thoughts about why we look for ourselves in those group photos. The chief one being that the greatest mystery in the cosmos to you is you. So often we're distracted and captivated by the powerful and the important and the heroic, however we've learned to define them. We wonder at the pilots and the centurions and the respected members of our councils, the places and people among what matters in the world really happens, or so we think. But today, maybe go home and pull out that old group photo. Look in on the mystery of your very own self until that self becomes the mysterious stranger to you that it is. Look with the attention of Mary Magdalene and the other women, not with the part of you where you feel like emperor of some small realm. Look with the parts of you that carry no weight at all in the world, the overlooked and the secret parts you'd really just as soon no one find out about, the hurts, the failures, the wounds, the fears. Look at that somebody in that photograph with the eyes of a nobody in the gospel story. And then let the terror and amazement gather that the ordinary sort of sinner Christ rose from the grave to birth into a new life is you. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.